brethren, at this particular time in human history, in a time of stress, a time when probably water wars are going to break out, food wars, all kinds of things, even in this country, you know that. In the paper this morning, they were talking about the tension building up between Florida and the city of Atlanta, because Atlanta does not want all that water from Lake Lanier to go down there to take care of their mussels, that is, this kind of a sea creature, and other things like that. As these things happen, human nature is going to come out, frankly, a lot more than probably even many of us realize. When people get hungry, when they lack water, when bad things happen through the whole society, it's going to get, as the British would say, bloody awful. It really is. It's going to be awful, awful. And we're living in such a time. And yet in such a time, some of our young people get discouraged. They think, well, the end of the world is coming and woe is me and I can't do anything. And what's my goal now? So what kind of life should we think about living now? Those of you who are old, those of you who are middle-aged, and those of you who are young. (laughs) We want to think about all of us. Turn back to Ezekiel, if you would, just to get a background here, first of all. Turn to Ezekiel, uh, chapter uh, 6. In Ezekiel, in chapter 6, I want to read something to you here that is, of course, something you're familiar with and yet very moving. He's talking to the people of Israel, and he says in Ezekiel 6, beginning in verse 11, Thus says the eternal God, Pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas! for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. Now, that's us. And most of you brethren around the world know that, or you wouldn't be in the church already. We are the descendants of the house of Israel. And if you look at the background of Ezekiel, he was writing over 100 years after, after ancient Israel was taken into slavery. He's not talking about that time. He's talking about our time now, not just to Judah. He says Judah and Israel several times. He knows the difference. He's talking about the house of Israel, America, and the British Commonwealth nations today. And often many of the democracies of northwestern Europe are included in this as well. Alas, for all the evil abominations. We're pushing hard right now toward same-sex marriage. All kinds of mainstream denominations are not just allowing them to attend. They're ordaining proclaimed homosexuals into their very ministry. That's how far down the tubes we have gone. The divorce rate is high, but would be far higher, except millions of young people don't need to get a divorce. They just live together anyway, just living together without benefit of marriage. And so all these other things are happening. The violence, of course, is worse than our nations. Other things are getting worse as we go along. God looks down from heaven on His people whom he gave these blessings and gave his word to. And we in America and we in Britain have sent out more missionaries, more ministers, more Bibles than all the rest of the world put together. And God holds us accountable for the knowledge that we've had. But we have abused that knowledge. We have not honored the God who gave us those blessings. So alas, for the evil abominations of the house of Israel, that's who this whole book is addressed to, for they shall fall by the sword, famine, and pestilence. So we're going to have a lack of food. We're going to have war. We're going to have terror. That's another form of the sword. He says over in verse uh, chapter 7, and continuing, it's all talking about the same thing. If you look at it, the house of Israel, Ezekiel 7, beginning in verse 23, make a chain for the land is filled with crimes of blood. 
Just the other day we read about this woman killing two of her children, remember, just right here in this area, and then shot herself. The children died, but she didn't. And the city's full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the Gentiles. They'll possess their houses. I'll cause the strong, pomp of the strong to cease. Their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They'll seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster. It's going to be awful, brethren, humanly speaking. Disaster after disaster. Rumor upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet. They'll wish they understood the truth and had a true preacher to understand what's going on. Why are these things happening? Is there a real God? Why is He permitting this? What's His purpose if there is a God? But the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. The ministers of this world basically don't understand anyway. Here is where we are now. We're entering that time in the next few years and the American dollar is going down and down even this last week. The headlines on the paper's front page today showed about our own banks right here. While Colby had to write an additional $1 billion of loans down. Bank of America's in trouble. The head of American Express was just kicked out a few days ago. Then the head of Citicorp just a couple of days ago, Charles Prince, the biggest single financial institution on earth. The board got rid of him. They're losing billions and billions of dollars. And things are beginning to shake the whole financial system. The Chinese are pulling out their money. Other nations are talking about doing the same. Other things like that. They're not small things. They're massive things happening. That's going to affect the stability of our society. And we need to understand. But we're God's children. God does not want us to lose hope. He has good things ahead. And I hope all you young people can realize that in spite of this. I want you to realize the other things are going to happen. That's why I introduced it this way. They are going to happen. I can't help that. I'm not bringing them about. Some of you younger people, it's not real to you. Some younger people, even in the church, scoff. There are scoffers in the last days. They don't understand. They've never experienced that kind of thing. I haven't experienced it firsthand in one sense, yet I saw the lines of men lining up outside my home right down at the corner in Joplin, Missouri during the Great Depression. As they say, they had the workers there, the WPA project. Two men would be going to the toilet, or two men in the toilet, or two men coming in the toilet, and out of the eight, the other two were working, you know what I mean? But they tried to give them something to do. They were out of work. Millions were out of work. It was a hard time. I remember my grandfather bringing food at night to help us because my dad was out of work for months and got fired because he was not fired, but his company just closed down, went bankrupt. Then he worked for another company, and then they went bankrupt. It was bad all over during the Great Depression of the 1930s. And then I told you how I was a little kid, age about 11, I was gathered together with all the other little kids in West Central Grade School in the auditorium, and they had the big radio sitting up there with some mics in front of it. And the President of the United States comes on. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The forces of the Empire of Japan attacked the United States forces of America in Hawaii. And I regret to tell you that very many American lives were lost. Turned to be about 3,000. It was awful. America's run a state of shock. That began what was called the greatest war in human history at that time. But most of you kids were not born yet. You don't understand that. That seems like ancient history. But shook my generation... And a far bigger war and a far bigger time is just ahead. And we need to realize it. God says so. It is beginning to happen. All the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. 
But God does have good things for His people, and I want all of us, older and younger, to think about in a right way those good things and hang on to that and put our faith and trust in God. Turn back to John chapter 10 in your New Testament. John chapter 10, and let's begin reading here in verse 7. Then John, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And brethren, there is no other way, no other way where you can get God's blessing and God's help and God's protection and God's guidance. This world is trying to water that down. They say all religions are the same. And you can believe in God any way you want to. Join the church of your choice and just do what your conscience says. What is your conscience? Your conscience is just that part of the human brain that has been accustomed to believe certain things, had certain impressions put into it by the nation and by the family, by the people around it. Individual ideas. It's not your conscience. It's this. It's this when you come to understand, and most of you have. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And if you study the word of God carefully, you realize all these other non-Christian religions are pagan. They're doctrines of demons when you really understand it. And I'm not exaggerating. That's what your God would tell you very clearly. They're nice demons. They're friendly demons sometimes to get under your skin. They look good. They have nice music, nice places to meet, nice robes for their people, black-robed ministers. They look impressive and so on. But they're not teaching God's truth. And there is a spirit behind each particular denomination of this world. And I think the Bible certainly indicates that. Only through the true Christ of the Bible can you have the help that God wants to give. He is the door. All who ever came before me, Zoroaster, back of the ancient Persian guy, Buddha, all these others, they were not the way. They were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So we do need to enter in through the door of Jesus Christ. And as I've said, brethren, I'll repeat again and again, my favorite verse is Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I've given my life to God. I buried the old self. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the ultimate key to success, to eternal life and to happiness and abundant life in this terrible world that we're entering now, a world worse than any other world that we've ever lived in. A time where, as Jesus said, there's never been any time like it before, nor nor ever shall be again. Christ lives in me, and Christ must live in us if we're going to have an abundant life. The thief does not come except to steal and kill. They come along with their religion. Some get you worshiping the Virgin Mary and they hear these ancient chants in some foreign language. But all through Central and South America. So I'm sure Mr. Colon has been traveled further south there into South America and over to Spain. What did that system bring them? Poverty, disorder, confusion. What are the fruits? What are the fruits of Protestantism in our country? To the degree they obeyed God in the early days, they were blessed because of the promises to Abraham, but now they're turning away even from what that little bit of the truth they had. And now the punishments are beginning to come. So the thief takes from people. 
I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And the Greek word here doesn't mean eternal life. Certainly includes eternal life, but it also means a full life. A full life. A life of meaning. A good life. And so we are to have a good life and a good life of meaning and really realize that. Even you young people, there's so much we can have and can do even now, whether the time is 7 or 11 or 27 or whatever, we can't set an exact date. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you should live as though Christ is coming tonight, but also you should live in a different way and plan ahead for your future, get your education, do other things as though Christ may not come for another 50 years. And so you have to think in a big picture way and be realistic about it in those things. My question at this point for all of you, because many, especially you young people, don't fully understand, what is the abundant life? What is the abundant life? In the United States, Hollywood has grabbed control of most people's minds, and they think the abundant life is having a lot of money, fancy cars, clothes, nightclubs, all this kind of thing. Is that really the abundant life? Are those people really happy? Am I just an old man with sour grapes about that? No, I'm not. You start studying and you'll find that what I say is true. I got to know Mr. Dan Truitt pretty well. He sang the role of Rolf in Sound of Music. So most of you have seen that movie. How many saw the movie Sound of Music? Okay, very good. Remember the delivery boy on the bicycle, Rolf? You're 16 and I'm 17 and I'll take care of you. You know, beautiful, beautiful dance out under the pergola. Very beautiful music. He came to Ambassador College. was in my freshman class. I had him for dinner in my home. Taught him, got to know him. A number of talks with him. He was in Hollywood. He dated several rather well-known movie stars before he got married, told me about it. He was very dedicated during that period of time and sincere, but got discouraged with the problems of the 70s, including one of the leading men that had these problems, which he picked out real quick because he'd been in Hollywood. He wasn't fooled by that behavior. But at any rate, he said over in Hollywood, so many of these stars, they go around like this, acting so happy. Oh, yes, how are you? And they go on this TV show. Oh, so good to see you on my show. And it's like this all the time. They're just going with joy. But he said afterward, they crash. They're having to act this part out. It's not real. They go home. They feel empty. And he said many of them that he's known personally or heard about from his own friends who did know them personally play sleeping pill roulette. You know, pistol roulette is where you take a pistol and you didn't maybe have one clip, one uh, shot in in a clip, and then you just shoot if it's loaded. If you happen to hit that, it'll blow your brains out. Otherwise, you won't or whatever. They take a lot of sleeping pills to go home and just take a whole bottle. I don't care. If I die tonight, that's tough. If I don't die, then that's okay. They play sleeping pill roulette. They're so miserable. These people that act so important, so hotsy-totsy, when you see them on TV or in the movies. Most of you have read about J. Paul Getty, who in his time was rated the richest man on the face of the earth. Maybe it was that in the 1950s or 60s, somewhere along in there. He was called the richest man in the world, J. Paul Getty. And he has written and said, and I've read it a number of times, I would give all that I have if I could just have one happy marriage. Just one happy marriage. If you're living in a big house alone, 
and your wives have said, take, take the hike, I can't stand you, and you have no close friends because you've been so selfish and vain and egotistical, you curl up at night with your beautiful young wife and share pleasantries and love and have friendship and, and love and warmth? No, you can't curl up to your sack of money. <laughs> Coins get cold at night. <laughs> they get cold at night. They're not very cheerful. What do you do to make yourself happy? Nothing. They can't be very happy. Why do people get so heavy into liquor and into drugs generally? Because they're unhappy. They're frustrated. Their life is not full. So you have to understand that. And I hope all you young people here and around the world can understand that too. That's not the happiness God is talking about. Believe me. What is real happiness? Well, frankly, as most of you older people know, real happiness is in more simple things. But before that, let's turn back to Isaiah 61. Isaiah chapter 61 at this point, and here is a sermon that Jesus gave in the synagogue and that uh, get a drink of this tea. Luke quoted it in the New Testament part of it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So he talks about these things that Christ was going to do. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So Christ came along and he opened the gospel to the people. And Luke quotes that thus far. And then he stops right there in the middle of the verse. Of course, there weren't verses back then. It was just one long scroll of Isaiah. But Christ went on, or Luke, uh, Isaiah went on, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion. So God is going to bring the, ba the captives back. He's going to comfort them. And he says in verse 4, they'll rebuild the old ruins, raise up the former desolations, repair the ruined cities and desolations of many generations as our people get back to Israel. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. The sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the eternal. Men shall call you servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. God does want his people to have good things, and in due time he will give those. Now, that's not right away today. And some of you young people will be in God's church and God's kingdom spiritually before that would happen. But those of our perhaps great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren are going to have that tremendous blessing. The very ones who took us into slavery will become servants and God will bless our people and take care of them. He's not above that and he does certainly want us to have good things. He said in verse 7, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. They had shame. They were taken into concentration camps. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. God is going to give those people at that time everlasting joy. He's not against joy. that He does want us to have it. Getting back to what is happiness and how can you really experience it in this life, turn to Ecclesiastes, if you would, verse 9. Chapter 9, I mean. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 7. 
here the apostle, not apostle, any, I'm always talking about the apostle Paul or John. This is, this of course, is Solomon who wrote this, the wisest man who ever lived. And even though he turned aside later, God inspired him to write these things. Go and eat your bread with joy. Be happy to be alive. Be happy to get up today, this morning, as I did and many of you did. You look out the window, it's a glorious, beautiful autumn day. All kinds of people all over in Ghana and in Niger and in the Sudan and Darfur and everywhere are starving to death. They're being tortured. People even down here is Mr. Uh, uh, I'm going to shoot myself. Anyway, those down here in Haiti are suffering and they're starving. Many people in the Western Hemisphere and all over the world. We have good things in this country because God has blessed us. So he says, do these things with joy. Uh, for God has already accepted your works. Test your garments. Let your garments be always white. And let your head lack no ointment. Enjoy being able to take a nice bath or shower, to have nice clean clothes, a nice home, to see the sunshine, to see the stars at night, to have plenty to eat and plenty to wear. Live joyfully with a wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life which he's given you under the sun. And brethren, one of the greatest joys not to persecute you bachelors and you spinsters, but one of the greatest joys is, of course, to be married. And I guess you know that. I'm not making everybody be married, but uh, if you can be married in a right way, that's, that's outstanding. So live joyfully with your wife. Live joyfully with your husband. All the days of your vanity, which is your portion in life and in the labor with which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So work hard at your job. Be a success. As one wise man said, find out what you're good at and what you really like to do and then find someone who will pay you for doing it. <laughs> if you're a good musician, get into that and perhaps you'll make a lot of money doing what you're really good at. If you're really good at computers... Perhaps you could get training and need training sometimes and so on, but then you can find someone to pay you for that. It isn't just that simple, but you know what I mean. Find out what you're good and enjoy your work. Mr. Armstrong used to quote Albert Hubbard. He said, get your happiness out of your work. And many of you know that joy. I know that's been a joy of mine, and I did not choose my career. I honestly did not before God. When I came to Ambassador College, I had all kinds of ideas of maybe going back to the University of Missouri after one year and getting into business. I was going to take a business administration course. In fact, I'd already had one year of business administration in the local community college and intended to go back there. And Betty Bates asked me halfway through the year. She caught me at the drinking fountain. She was the only girl in college, and she was a sister to all of us. She said, Rod, are you going to stay she saw I was kind of, you know, kind of thinking about things. She said, yeah, I think I will. I've got to find out more what this is all about. <laughs> so, so I wasn't there to get a job. I wasn't there to be in the ministry. Some later students thought, well, everyone would know you're going to be a minister because you see all these other guys going through and getting to be ministers. No, not back then. There was nobody else going through who was already a minister when I came. Nobody. Zero. My Methodist minister, Dr. Ridpath, was about 60 and kind of portly and real soft-spoken. Mr. Armstrong was about 60 and portly 
he was not soft-spoken, <laughs> had a more powerful voice and personality. I thought all ministers were like that. I didn't think I was going to be a minister. I intended to go back and do that, or I thought about going to George Williams College and studying a particular course. They had to be a YMCA. I think Mr. Punch has been a YMCA manager. That's what I wanted to be, a general manager of a YMCA. I was like, Sports, but I thought, well, you make more money as the general manager than just the coach, so I'll do that. I thought about being a foreign correspondent. I like to write like Ernie Pyle, who wrote from the trenches in the Second World War. I thought of all those things. But I got out there and I found out the purpose of human existence and somehow got in the work that talks about the purpose of human existence. And that's the most important thing on earth to me. It is my life. It's not part of my life. It is my life. And I'm happier at that than anything else I could be doing. But get your happiness out of your work. And you've got to learn to do that. All of us, you young men, you young women, and some of you young women may have a career or some job for a while, but if you can be married and make a career out of being a wife, that's actually best of all. If you can find a husband who can finally, maybe after a year or two or three, he can you can save together enough to have your child and then he can still make enough money for both of you. That's more ideal. So whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with your might. So God tells us to do those things, and we should learn those lessons that God wants us to learn and be very happy at what we're doing. It doesn't take a lot to be happy. Abraham Lincoln, one of the greatest presidents of the United States, as everyone agrees, said, most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. A lot of you have heard that, I know. I'll repeat that. Most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Happiness is not a big car. Happiness is not a great big Hollywood mansion. Happiness is right here between your ears. I have made fun at times, maybe overly just enjoy it, I guess, about Norman Vincent Peale. I don't dislike him. I met him by and boy in Beirut, Lebanon years ago. <laughs> John Hill and I were checking into this hotel. But, you know, he had the power of positive thinking. He wrote this book, and he tried to say everything is positive thinking. Of course, that's wrong. As one old Baptist preacher said, he find, I said, I find the, the Apostle Paul appealing. I find Dr. Peel appalling. But uh, <laughs> he, he tried to make that his whole religion, just the power of positive thinking. And that's not the only thing, but it is important. He did, he did hit on to something, as many people before him have too, of course. He didn't invent it. Emile Couet, the French philosopher, said long before Norman Vincent Peale, look in the mirror, say, every way and every, every day and every way, I'm getting better and better. You know, you're supposed to look in the mirror and say that. You've got to learn to feel good about yourself. But if you put that on too much, then you'll be disillusioned later. So you can't just have that as your religion alone. But you've got to learn to be happy by learning to appreciate the sunrise and the sunset and the beautiful trees and flowers Beautiful little children, your beautiful wife, your almost handsome husband, almost handsome. <laughs> You've got to learn to appreciate the simple things, love and kindness and warmth and family. And if you do that, you can be very, very happy, frankly. And that's what God wants us to do. And he describes that uh, many times in the Bible. Abundant life is often found and great accomplishment in your work, or you can feel you're really doing something that's worthwhile. Worthwhile! And you're doing it well. You can get a great deal of happiness and abundant life out of that. 
is in a loving family where you can build your family and love them and help them, teach them, encourage them, and see them grow into worthwhile human beings. It's having friends and sharing. Iron sharpens iron. And I enjoy talking with Dr. Winnale and, and, and Mr. Crockett and Mr. Ames and some of my friends around here. Mr. Apartian's my longest time friend. And they sharpen me. They knock some of the rough edges off. Some are still on, on unfortunately. <laughs> my main persecutor is sitting right back there. But anyway, I won't give you his name, but his initials are Debar Apartian. And uh, <laughs> so he, he tells me the way it is. He's too old to fire. <laughs> too old to get mad at. So it's very important to learn to be positive. Learn to see the positive side of each story. I'll always remember being at Big Sandy or coming in there as a guest speaker one time. And uh, I always enjoyed going over there. Uh, Ted Armstrong let me go over and be a guest uh, uh, speaker and talk to the leading men because we were going to hire them and I was over the ministry. And uh, so I would, I would always kind of fudge. Rather than staying 10 days, I'd stay two full weeks. And so I'd be there three Sundays and then I could fish each Sunday while I was there because we didn't have any fishing out around Pasadena. Too many people and too few fish. And I didn't like to fish in the ocean. But at any rate, uh, I remember one time we arrived Friday afternoon or evening. And then during the middle of the night, I was to preach the next day. Great big headquarters church there at Big Sandy, the second largest church in the world. Later got to be the largest. But it was, you know, several hundred, five or seven or nine hundred people. And uh, I, that, that early morning after midnight, this tremendous Texas storm came in. Oh, it was powerful. It was the most powerful Texas storm or United States storm I've ever experienced. I experienced one like over in Lugano, Italy, in southern uh, Switzerland, I mean, one time. But this was a north, uh, this was a norther, whatever. Anyway, it was strong. And the thunder was coming down and literally shake the earth. And lightning was coming down. And the, the water was just pouring down. But the thunder and the lightning was so powerful. We were tired. We'd flown over there. But it literally shook us out of our bed. And so my wife and I and the children all got up and we went into the family room. Uh, Ted used to have this nice place there in the family room, went around three sides looking out over Lake Loma. And here is the lightning coming, boom, 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 boom. I said, wow, there's the power of God. And I really enjoyed that display of the power of God. I said, wow. And after about an hour, hour and a half it calmed down, so we finally went back to bed. So I enjoyed it so much. Next morning coming into church, or next afternoon, I should say, while I was telling a number of the brethren about it, I said, boy, that was an exciting storm last night. Wasn't that enjoyable? Just the power of God. And so Dale Scherter, some of you know, he was built something like Mario. He was 6'2 and broad-shouldered, great big husky farm boy from Oklahoma. He was over the farm program, and he got up for the sermonette. And he hadn't heard me talking as I came in. Here I was, you know, from Pasadena, the big guy from Pasadena. And he said, Brethren, Satan struck God's campus last night. And I thought, oh my. <laughs> he described how the storm came and knocked down one of the work sheds and, and, and struck one or two trees and ruined them. Well, I didn't know about that. I just knew it was so exciting. So you see, there are two sides to every story. <laughs> so you want to learn the positive sometimes as well. Brethren, if some of these things happen, we can be very sad and we can think, wow, 
the dollar is going down and the United States of Europe is coming up and China is getting more powerful and even our Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, was over there to asking, why are you making your military so strong? And, of course, they don't have any good answer for that to tell us because they're getting ready to challenge us and we know that and they know that. And, uh, you know, all these other bad things are happening. The Arabs are against us. 1.2 billion uh, Muslims all over the world. It's getting awful. But yet we can also realize we've got to see the positive side of the thing. And uh, we, we need to think about what Jesus said, as I've quoted to you before. But if you turn to Luke 21, you'll see how Jesus described these things that are coming. And he described the drought, famine, disease epidemics, and terrors, and so on. And he said here in verse 28, Luke 21, 28, Now when these things begin to happen, they didn't, aren't finished yet, but they are beginning, when they begin to happen, what should we do? Be sad say, oh, woe was me. The world's coming to an end. No. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. It's that much sooner, that much sooner to Christ coming. Now, for some young people who don't truly believe in God, of course, they don't want Christ to come and they want to have a marriage in a normal society. But frankly, brethren, and frankly, young people, as you young people see some of these water wars and food wars and terrible stress in our society, you will realize yourself in time to come, if you're listening to what I say or read the Bible or understand anything, you'll realize this is a bad place. We will be much happier even if we have to live in a cave in Petra and find a pretty girl there to marry or in God's kingdom. We don't have to have Hollywood. We don't have to have, you know, our big TV set. We don't have to have all that. We can be thankful to be alive. We can be thankful that we're not in the concentration camps. We can be thankful that our Father in heaven will give us food and drink and a place to stay and watch over us because He is our Father and He will take care of us. And under the circumstances, and I have to say it that way because we are living at the end of an age, but under the circumstances, we can have an abundant life. Some people compare themselves with Hollywood rich people. Don't do that. You can also compare yourselves with the people who are being beaten and robbed and raped and killed and all that over in Darfur. When you see the hurt and the anguish in those people who have been treated like that all over this world, you can realize, thank God I'm in this country. Thank God we have peace. Thank God good things are happening overall. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verse 1. The righteous perishes... And no man takes it to heart. Some of our ministers have been very righteous. They've lived wonderful lives to serve and help others. They've traveled around the world. And some of them have seen wonderful things and done wonderful things in many parts of the world and given, been given by God a very full life. And yet they did not all live to be fully 70 years of age. But the righteous perishes. People don't always think about it. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away. And here the Greek word or the Hebrew is better translated. I looked this up. I think this is the better translation. The righteous is taken away from the face of evil. The face of evil. Evil is going to face us. It's going to be awful in the next few years. The face of evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. God has allowed some to go to sleep. 
And we pray that he will not allow too many to have that happen before age 70, but some will live less than 70 years. Some will live beyond. And God knows what's best. And he is the father of mercies. That's what he calls himself. But during their life, when I think about my friend Carl Manair, he traveled all over the United States. He served thousands of people. He had a, a nice, two, probably two or three trips down to South Africa and even got to go on a safari, a hunting trip with a big, big game hunter in the wilds of South Africa. He hunted some of the big mountains up in the United States, northern United States and perhaps Canada. All over the world saw things, experienced things, helped build the work of God again and again. He lived a very full life. He lived about the same age as both his parents did. In fact, lived one year young, beyond one of his parents. I performed both their funerals, so I remember that. Mr. Gwynn lived a wonderful life, served people all over the world, were still benefited from the magnificent correspondence course, he, the Bible study course that he wrote, and his booklets. Served and gave and helped. So God understands the end from the beginning. We don't. But during their lives, these men did live an abundant life. And they had wonderful experiences. And God will take care of us. And we do need to really deeply understand that. So we've got to see the big picture and, and think about the positive side of every situation from God's point of view. Now just imagine. Back in Philippians chapter 4, brethren. In Philippians chapter 4, if you would turn there, please. And I'm going to read something that is familiar, I think, to most of us. But turning to Philippians 4, verse 4. If you read the first few verses of Philippians, he talks about being in prison. He had a ball and chain soldered between his ankles. He was a Roman prisoner. A prisoner. And yet he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Right while he had a Roman soldier with a spear guarding him, he had his mind on Christ. He looked at the end. Let your gentleness or your graciousness is better translated. Be known to all men. Being gracious, loving, and kind, and serving. The eternal or the Lord is at hand. Christ is coming soon. Be anxious for nothing. Don't say, oh, I don't have quite enough to eat. We don't, our, our television is not as big as the neighbor's. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> you don't need a television bigger than the neighbor's. If you're starving to death, it would not even occur to you to think that way. If you people understand so don't be anxious about things like that. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Think about that. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And brethren, that's a wonderful thing, and that's God's promise. If you're really converted, if you have God's Spirit, if you think about the world tomorrow and your mind is on the heavenly things, you're going to have a deep peace of mind. You'll have little tiny frustrations here and there, but you'll get over them real quick because you'll start thinking about God's purpose and all these things that happen. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, think about good things, true things, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, beautiful things, lovely things, this beautiful earth, the vast oceans, the tremendous towering mountains. I love mountains. I like to see mountains, climb mountains, and all this kind of thing. Whatever things are of good report, 
If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. God wants us to think on good things. And frankly, Mr. Armstrong taught us quality, and God wants us to think on what God thinks on too. He wants us to live a quality life, praiseworthy. Do your best at your job. And then within your means, it's all right to have a nice car if you can't afford it, to wear nice clothes if you can't afford it without hurting and so on. Take some nice trips, see some beautiful things. Nothing wrong with those things. Have a beautiful wife, a handsome husband, or partway handsome, okay. <laughs> and do some wonderful things in your life with quality. Learn to enjoy things that are praiseworthy. The right kind of music, not screeching, yelling, nothing. Noise, but quality music, quality art, quality literature. Be like God. Be like Christ. Think on those things. The things you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. God will be with you. He says a little later, he says in verse 12, I know how to be abased. You better believe Paul knew how to be abased. He was in jail many times. He probably spent about five years of his ministry in jail. Two years the first time in Caesarea. Later on, two more years, a little over two years in Rome. And then other times in between. Four and a half to five years of his life was in jail. You better knew. No, he had to do without. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. At the end of this letter, he got a great big offering, probably a whole sack of gold coins from the Philippians when you understand the currency of the day. And he said in verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. And some of the commentaries say repeating it strongly that way meant Paul really got a big gift, which he must have done from the Philippian church. Having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-selling aroma, Smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to my to God, and my God shall supply all your need. He doesn't give us everything we want. We don't always have a gold Cadillac, but he takes care of our need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So Paul said, I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I know both how to be hungry and I know how to be full. I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's it, brethren. If Christ is living in you and you see God and the world and the trials and the tests and the future from God's point of view, you can know why you're here. You can understand the end from the beginning and have therefore a deep peace of mind. You know where you're going. You can know that Mr. Armstrong's saying is absolutely right. He said, in the end, we win. In the end, we win. And if you walk with God, you will see that. And that will happen. And you can have a very abundant life in this world. Even though it's not totally peaceful. And you won't have the same degree of maybe peace around you. And physical abundance you might have had 50 years ago. Or maybe even before I grew up, before the Great Depression or other times, but you can have a good life, an abundant life, and a very meaningful life. And that's what God wants all of us to have. So we do want to think on those things. Through Christ, we can do all things. One of the greatest joys I ever experienced as well, and I have told you this before, and I'm not bragging, I'm not complaining, sincerely before God, it, it, this is the way it is. 
A lot of you can't understand it unless you experienced it. But one of the happiest times of my life, three full summers plus some other times with Mr. Pardon and Dr. Ray, going on the baptizing tours. And all day long for ten and a half weeks in the summer of 1951, Raymond Minaire and I went out in an air, a non-air-conditioned old Chrysler all over the south. It was hotter blazes. We were working 10 or 12, 14 hours a day. We only got one meal a day, one real hot meal, regular meal. We would feed each other raisins and nuts and stuff. And he liked cold uh, sardines out of the can. That made my stomach uh, whatever. <laughs> but he liked those. <laughs> and we made out all right. And I never have had one second of regret. I look back on those people that we were helping I look back on those people who would sometimes have tears in their eyes. Some broke down and cried when we left because they knew they had waited, some of them, five or ten years for someone to come from Mr. Armstrong and they knew they might not see anyone from the truth again. And some of them didn't because we, didn't, we couldn't have churches for another few years. Although three to five years later we started starting churches back there, but then some of them were dead. And they had deep feeling for us. That turned my life around as much as being converted. I saw that need and then I realized, no, I'd better get involved in this work. This is the work of God. That was a big turning point for me. Even though I missed meals, I missed sleep. We had to have a big pillow in the back because Raymond would drive and I would sleep and then he, I would drive and he would sleep. One time the car, I could feel it was sleeping, kind of went around and I, I sort of felt it going around and I woke up and he kind of, like this, and I said, Raymond, was there any problem? Oh, no, everything's fine. And then he drove down about half a mile and turned slowly around, and I said, you got, you skidded care around. Well, he says, there was a slick spot back there. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we, we almost perished, you know. But anyway, the next summer I was with his younger brother, Berkman there, all summer long, 11 weeks, 19,500 miles all over the United States and up into southern Canada. The next summer, half the summer with Herman Hay. Later, others, I won't go through everybody, but anyway, I was able to take Dick Armstrong on a tour across the United States just on the way to New York, and then Ted Armstrong in East Texas and Louisiana. And I was the leader. He was an Armstrong, but he came to college later, so I led on the tour. We were missing sleep and working hard. And during all those tours, we constantly missed sleep, missed food. I had not one single date no pretty girls, nothing, but I haven't missed it at all. God gave me a beautiful wife or two beautiful wives, and I've been very, very grateful. He took care of me. I didn't get to date or do anything, but some of the happiest summers of my life, the sense of fulfillment, the sense of helping people, and a lot of you know that, but I'm just helping you. Please think about that, young people. Get in something with meaning, and your life can be very, very full, and very full indeed. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ, you see, from the baptismal, seek those things which are above. Think about the coming glory of the kingdom of God, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, and that's the whole thing, if Christ becomes your life and you feel that way, None of us feels that way perfectly. I don't. But to the degree we do, 
and have the sense that our life is Christ's life, we've given our life to God to that degree, we can have a powerful sense of purpose, a powerful sense of joy and peace of mind. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So set your mind on things above and the real purpose for your life. And that's so important and so wonderful. Think back in Revelation 21. God tells us what He wants for us and what He will ultimately give us. And I'll just read a few of these verses. You're familiar with it. Revelation 21, verse 1. Here's the ultimate future. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Absolute beauty, gorgeous magnificence. To the degree we can have beautiful music here, we should appreciate that. To the degree we can have beautiful art, beautiful literature, the right kind of entertainment, the right kind of beauty in our homes, the right kind of outdoor beauty when we go to see the things of God. That's the greatest beauty of all. Years ago, Mr. Weston, I came back from Pasadena to see him. This was way back about 25 or 30 years ago, probably 35. I think it was, I can't remember who it was. Anyway, way back when, and I visited him and his wife, and they were pastoring Asheville. And he knew I was coming on Thursday night. Usually on Friday, I'd visit with the minister to get acquainted, preach Sabbath, and fly home Sunday. And I told him we'd have Friday to just go do something and visit together. He said, I give you two choices when I arrived there. He said, we can go to the Biltmore house, great big beautiful thing, and see this house and all this stuff, or we can go hiking in the mountains. It didn't take me very long to decide. About two seconds. The mountains. I can see Biltmore house any day, and I've never seen it yet. <laughs> I will someday. But I'd already seen so many of the big castles and homes in England, I'd, you know. And I wanted to see this big North Carolina mountains. They're far more beautiful than any Biltmore house or any other house like that that man has made. God has beautiful things. At that time, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. No more shaking, crying agony from these people all over Bangladesh and Darfur and all over the world. It will be done. And there will be peace and joy over the whole world. Verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Someday we will be born into the very family of God. We will interact with Christ and God and talk to them and walk with them and serve with them and accomplish with them through the whole universe. And I will be His God and He shall be my Son. That's very real. But let's go back at the beginning. I could end there and make it real nice, but I want to go back to more something even more realistic at the very end. And if you can understand it, I think it may be because some people may think, well, that's too idealistic. Turn back to 2 Timothy as we close. 2 Timothy, brethren, chapter 4. You can say, well, Mr. Carl Manair died at 66 and two-thirds. He was almost 67. Others have died in their 60s, some even in their late 50s. What's going on? As I've said, everybody doesn't live to be exactly 70. And you know that as well as I do. Just before the sermon, I should have written it down, but I looked up the longevity, the life expectancy. And all through Africa, literally virtually every nation, 
and in India, the largest single nation of the earth, and Bangladesh and a number of those nations, the life expectancy is 32, 35, or India and Bangladesh is 48 or 49 or whatever. Not even 50 years old. That's their life expectancy. So some of our ministers have died at age 52 or 56 or 66 or something. Vast hundreds of millions of others don't get to live near that long. So we have to think about it in perspective. God looks down from heaven and He knows. But here is one of His greatest servants in all the history of the earth. And God was with Him. And God blessed Him. And God took care of Him. And will take care of Him. He says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. We're supposed not to preach Longfellow's poems or somebody's philosophy, as so many preachers do, including the one I grew up with. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Correct people if you need to with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They want to hear something sweet and soft and pleasant. They'll turn away from the truth and be turned to fables, fairy tales. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. And brethren, we've got to do that in a right way. Think positive. See the big picture. In the end, we win. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Was Paul being negative? No. God had undoubtedly shown him directly or by circumstance. And God did give Paul occasionally visions and dreams from God directly. Might have been that. We don't know. But he knew this time before he indicated he might see Timothy again after, I mean, some of the church people again after 1 Timothy. But 2 Timothy doesn't say that. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I'm about to be executed. He knew that. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not me only, but also all those who have loved His appearing, who have loved His appearing, who look forward to that and want Christ to come back so bad they can taste it. It's real to them. And brethren, we've got to have that perspective. You can say, well, Paul didn't have an abundant life. He had to travel all over here and there, spent five years in prison, he was lashed five times by the Jews and innumerable times by the Gentiles above 40 lashes. Great stripes across his back, blood flowing down, thrown in jail, beaten up, kicked, cursed, stoned, left for dead outside Lystra. One time they threw him overboard apparently or was shipwrecked and he was a night and a day floating out on the Mediterranean. He had a plank, a big wooden log or something hanging on to, I guess. He must have looked up at the sky and the stars above the Mediterranean that night. Here I am, God. I'm down here. You're up there. How long am I going to be here? Is this the end? Paul went through time after time like that. But on the other hand, Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire. Paul saw, saw wonderful things. The big mountains there in the era we call Turkey. The beautiful sea coast of Israel and all these other areas. The glory of Rome. He saw things after things. Marching legions, no doubt beautiful music. Marvelous things. He loved God. He served God. Christ was very real and appeared to him. He lived a magnificent life. But his life was cut off before age 70. Everything indicates that at least. He probably did not live. He probably lived about 65 or 67. 
And then the indication is, at the end of all that service, instead of having the angels come down and take him off to heaven with angels singing and choirs of cherubim, what happened? He went out one cold morning, put his head on a chopping block, and got his head chopped off. What a reward. Odd way to end the sermon. But brethren, you have to think from God's point of view. He lived a long, wonderful life. He said earlier in Philippians, he said, it's, I would rather depart and be with Christ, but to be with you is more needful to serve you. So knowing this, I'll probably live a little bit longer. So he had the glory of being one of God's martyrs, and he knew that. I don't think he was afraid at all. He thought, boy, I'm tired. They're going to throw rocks at me more the next time. This guy's going to get a... He's, I, I'm glad to go to sleep. I don't think Paul shivered or shook or cried or anything like that. He just went to sleep. And the next split second, he will see some of us. And boy, I'm going to go up to him. I'm going to say, Paul, I introduced the Epistles of Paul class in Ambassador College back in 1953. I loved your writings. And people kept asking questions about that more than any other part of the Bible. So we had this class. And I want to hear some more of your stories. <laughs> I hope to do that. He will be there. And if you have that picture in your mind and you walk with God and you trust, put your faith and trust in God and know that God is your Father, He will take care of you. He will watch over you. And you walk with God, talk with God, commune with God. Do work hard. Be a success at your life. Plan for the future. Have a good job in this life. Get a good education. Do those things you should do in balance. But have that big picture in your mind. Then you will be blessed in this life and you'll have a peace of mind in this life when these things get worse. And you will have a reward in eternity beyond what other people can even imagine and what even you and I can imagine. Because God is love. He is love. And He has good things, very good things, marvelous things in store for you and me. Because He is actually our Father.